After Jesus came into my life, I realized a relationship with him needs more than just an invitation. This is the story of how I began to prepare, prepare room for Jesus to make his home in my heart. From the study, we went to the dining table, the room of desires and ambition. Though it seems polite to hide it from others, I have a big appetite and spend a lot of time working here to feed my hungers. I turned and said to Jesus, I love this room and I hope you'll enjoy what is served here as much as I do. He appeared eager to sample the fare and took a seat with me. This room is excellent, very spacious, he said. What's for dinner tonight? Well, I said, all the dishes required to make it in this world. I admit to feeling a tinge of pride as the dishes were put on the table. These recipes were my own special variations from some old world classics, wealth, adventure, self-image, the appearance of success, some shallow networks of acquaintances, and for dessert, some constructed happiness on Facebook and Instagram. I dove right in to eat as soon as they hit the table. But with my mouth full, I noticed Jesus hadn't said anything yet. He hadn't even taken a bite. Master, what's wrong? Is it because I forgot to pray and ask your blessing? He looked at me for longer than I would have liked before speaking. It's true. You didn't seek a blessing before you started. But I want you to know something important. This food will never be enough to satisfy. Haven't you noticed how often you have to come back here? He continued, I have food that you do not know of. If you want true and deeper satisfaction, learn some new dishes. Do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with the Father. Then right there at the table, he gave me a little sampling, a little appetizer of the joy of doing God's will. What an explosion of new flavor. There is nothing else like it in all the world. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Press. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. If you and I have not had a chance to meet, I'd love to uh, say hi, say hello to you. Just come on up right at the end of the service. Find me. I'm the one wearing the Bronco tie. <clears throat> yeah. So this is the second sermon in this series, and this is also the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, for huge chunks of the Christian world, Advent is this time that we prepare for this most astonishing of stories. God enters into the human drama as a human. God enters into the mire and the muck of what is true about humanity to address it in some new, unexpected, astonishing way. He, he comes as a baby. 
And for those of us who've come to believe and trust and know that story as our own story, that's, that's not the end of the journey. The journey goes a little bit further, actually. The, the promise is then, when we trust that story, that God himself, Jesus Christ, gives us a spirit that comes all the way into the human heart. Not just to address what's going on here on the planet, but also to address what's going on within you and me. We sing this every Advent, every Christmas. We sing this little hymn. You know, I'm going to say this, and those of you who know Christmas hymns, you know Joy to the World, it might get stuck in your head. That's okay with me. I kind of like that. But this Christmas hymn says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Come on, some of you, are like, you want to sing it, don't you? I know okay. And then, let every heart prepare him room. So the, the journey into uh, just to being here is good news, but the best is that he wants to partake in life with you, he wants to reside in your heart. How do we do that? How do we go allow, going about sort of allowing ourselves to, to make that kind of space? And that's what we're seeking to explore and understand this season leading up to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. To help us do, do, to help us do that, we've been using this uh, skeleton of a sermon called My Heart Christ Home by a pastor in uh, Berkeley, California, delivered in 1946. And in it, Jesus has taken on a tour of this man's heart as they go to each room to understand what needs to happen in that room for there to be some sort of additional space made where Christ feels at home and eventually um, cleans it all up. That's the story. Last week we started, and uh, Jane started with this, the study. In my own house, you go right into the entryway, you turn left, and you're right there in what some people would call the study or the office or the library or in one of those kinds of things. And she did an excellent job of saying the very first thing we need to do is, is how we find out we actually give all the mind share that we need to give to the Lord. There's always going to be this competition for an understanding of how to think and what really matters. And she uh, used this little passage from Romans 12. Do not conform anymore to the pattern of this world. Do you, do you hear the competition for mind share? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I don't have the time, although I'd love to interview each and every single one of you, but that passage I know rings true for me. I often find myself in competition to, to have my mind, imagination, my thoughts constrained and shorn and, sh and conformed to the vision that God has for me and for us. Today, just like actually in my own real house, we're going to cross the entryway and now we're going to head into the dining room. And God's going to sit us down and He's going to share some things with us about our appetites, our hearts our ambitions. It's not just a head game, it's also a heart game, and next week it'll be a hands game. 
So why don't we pray, shall we? And we'll get into the work of the heart that God has for us today. Lord, thank you for bringing us here together today to sing your praises. We pray, Lord, that um, this choir of broken voices has been pleasing to you as we've sung together. As we've lifted up our hearts to you in prayer, Lord, we pray that you would take those things and mend them together and make them better than we could have without you ever. And Lord, would you let our worship continue as we hear from your word? This too is an act of worship. We come both to receive from you and to thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that just in the way that you have tugged us all here to be in this place, where we discover what is good and pure and right about us being here and hearing from your scripture. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. If you are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, all right. So I want you to imagine that God has come into your heart seeking to have some sort of a conversation and dialogue with you. Let's just wonder, what would he say to you about your ambition? What would he say to you about the, the dreams that you have? When you're not texting, but the person still behind you at the stoplight honks, what would Jesus say to you about whatever your daydream was about? What would he say about those things? Here's the good news, friends. Christ has come into your heart. And we don't have to wonder what he would say. The scriptures themselves, gifted to us in and through the Holy Spirit, we don't have to make this stuff up. We actually know what God would say. We actually know that there are things um, that he would want to share and say with us because he is here, both in his word and in his spirit. And today, we're going to just look at this one, three verses in um, the first letter from John. John, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John is the one who also wrote the gospel of John. He wrote these three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. Remember, no S. And as we sort of imagine God sort of sitting across a table from us to speak to us about our hearts, this is as good a place as any for us to begin to have that decades-long conversation. And here's what he says, just starting at verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Do not love the world. It's worth stopping just right there, actually, and saying, what are we really talking about? A lot of times we um, will read this. I've read this, and I've felt conviction that I don't actually need to feel. Let's, let's talk about this word, world. The Bible uses this word, world, in lots of different ways, the way we use world in other words, lots of different ways. And one of the ways that the Bible uses the word world is just to talk about creation to talk about the, the goodness of what it is that actually has, God has intricately and carefully and beautifully woven together. 
we actually have examples in the book of Psalms where um, God is praised because of what he's made. Psalm 19. So that must not be it. The world's beautiful. We should be able to sit and, and love what God has made and created and admire it and understand what it shows us and teaches us about God. Certainly we can love the world in that way, and maybe we should even love it a little more. Do not love the world. Sometimes the world talks about the, all the people who are here on this sphere. In fact, when it comes to that, we have this sort of countermand. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Oftentimes, when the Bible uses the word world, it's talking about all the gathering of people who were on it. And on this first Sunday of Advent, it's good for us to remember this passage. God has come into the world that we might have life. God has come into the world that we should not perish. God has come in that we might actually be addressed and be given a new and a fresh hope. Certainly, that kind of world we should love. I should love my family, my neighbors, those I will never get to meet. So what kind of world are we talking about? The other way that the Bible uses the word world is the way it talks about the, the system that's sort of been built up here in the age of human sin. It's talking about all the systems, all the stuff, all the things that are patterns that are hostile to God. All the various ways we sort of built up habits and practices where it seems like we're detached from a spiritual reality and, and pursuing something that actually we know is never going to actually give us life. It might sustain our biology, but not give us life. The Apostle Paul often will use the word for this. He talks about flesh. Now, he's not, when he uses the word flesh, he's not talking about skin. Skin is good. I would like to keep my skin. I'm pretty sure as a preacher, you would like for me to keep my skin. But what he's saying, actually, is there's a, there's a pattern of stepping into our life where we let the old ways govern us. There are these times when we allow the, the old ways to actually dictate how we think, what we wonder about, how we build our life, what we're aiming for, what do we think of as a trajectory of what we're seeking to accomplish. John says, do not love the world. Do not follow the ways of the flesh, Paul will say in just a little bit. There's something for us to step aside. And then, well, what does that look like? What does that actually feel like? In this tiny little passage, John actually gives us a sense of what those things are. He says, look, everything in the world, all that stuff that actually is the, the old pattern, all that, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They come not from the Father, but from the world. 
And here it is. We have a pretty good actual like, set of things for us to gauge. And we're talking about our appetites, our desires, our ambitions. John says one of the very first things we can, we can wonder about is the, the lust that comes um, of the flesh. Lust, not just desire, but the desire, this eager pursuit, yearning that this is going to be the thing that's going to be all-fulfilling. And he says some of those things actually are just within us. They're already within the flesh. They're part of this thing, this battle that's going on inside of us. It's big things and it's small things. It can be about the way that we think about um, that really beautiful person walking by the street. It can be the way we think about um, an interaction we have with another person. It could be, for example, about the plastic Christmas tree and the lights can't get quite figured out and someone's wondering why I don't figure it out. Maybe like yesterday. And my response, let's say, in my heart, is of the flesh. I'm pretty frustrated that somehow this has become my responsibility. We all have ways and manners where we find ourselves naturally sort of reacting, wanting to protect ourselves, wanting to assert our authority. People don't have to teach us to do that. The longings that we have sort of secretly and privately. Everything in the world from the old way. Let's get rid of that, the lust of the flesh. He also says, it's not just in you, it's also out there. He's like, do not covet. When he talks about the, the lust of the eyes, what he's talking about is, is looking at something and wishing you had it for yourself. In fact, not only sometimes wishing that you had it, but wishing that they didn't. He says, let's take a sort of a survey of what's around you. Are you letting it shape your life in a way that is of the world and of the flesh? Can I just tell you, I've told you guys this many times, I, I, this is mine. I have this problem. I see the cars that my friends or neighbors drive, like, well, I would, I would really like to drive that car instead of my 2004 Buick Rainier. I love the way they fixed up their house. It's so great and comfy and warm. I love the way that they have helped their children pay for college. How in the world am I going to pay for 16 years worth of college? I am not. And I've sought to be as clear about that as I can with my kids. <laughs> but I covet it. I lust with the eyes. I want these things. In fact, I, I oftentimes I, I make decisions based on the goodness of those things alone. I, I make decisions based simply on the goodness of what I have here right now at the moment, something that I, I want and eagerly desire. It's a little bit like what happens to many of us during Christmas. We lust with the eyes. So John says there's this problem as we seek to understand human desire and ambition. First, there's, there's something about the old ways that sort of wells within our heart. 
Secondly, he says there's something about this where um, we covet with the eyes. And third, he says, guard against the pride of life. What he's talking about is what happens to our hearts when we get those things. For those of you who are a little further in life and a little more comfortable, can you look back and think about the zeal you had when you were younger? See, it's not very polite for us. We don't, we don't ever say, like, yeah, I totally made it. I'm doing awesome. I have all the stuff you've been dreaming about. People don't say that. That's rude. But it's true. When we start finding ourselves sort of feeling self-satisfied about the stuff that we've acquired, John says we are dangerously putting ourselves back into the ways of the world. Do not love the world. The more self-satisfied we become, the more comfortable we are that we've made it and that we have arrived, the, the more we're like, actually, I'm doing good with me and mine. Then we've misstepped when it comes to not loving the world. He comes up with this, uh, uh, the scriptures also talk about this in this passage, this well-loved, but known, like known, beloved passage from uh, Galatians chapter 5. And this is the Apostle Paul this time speaking God's words, and he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Remember we said what that word is. It's okay for us to like desire a cold drink, some heat, some shelter. It's not what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about in a second. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever it is you want. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Here they are. Here's some of them. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and in case I miss something, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I read this list. I'm like, yes, I have not participated in any orgies. I am in. You might take it as really good news that I have never practiced witchcraft. As your pastor, that seems like something you want to know. But when I step back from that sort of like that self-assurance, that sense of confidence that I have that I must be good because I don't have the extremes on this list. You know, Jesus says... Even when we look lustfully with our eyes, we've already committed adultery. I'm not going to get into it. Now is not the time or the way. But I have impure thoughts. My heart yearns after things for which I shouldn't yearn. I pursue often in my heart, in my imagination, 
the way of the flesh. Likewise, I, just to cover a couple of them, I, like I said, I don't, I've, I've never been a witch or a warlock, not even for Halloween. But you know what I have done? I have thought that if I just say the right words, God will do what I want. I have, I have treated God like sort of this, this magic lamp. That if I sort of just rub him the right way and say the right things and stand in the right place, if I sort of essentially say the right spell, God will be compelled to do whatever it is that I've asked. And if I do that, friends, is it about God or does it now become about me again? And I find myself pursuing the way of the flesh. Jesus sits at the table and says to me, I see all these things. Let's talk about the, the heart and the ambition. What is it you're longing for? What do you, what do you want? Can, can we have that come to, to conformity with what I want for you? He goes on and he says this at the end of Galatians here, this chapter 5. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit... It's not just a negative. There's, there's ambitions we can seek to develop. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Some of you have a song for that, too. Not stuck in my head. <laughs> Against such things, there is no law. You can pursue those things. That can be your heart's ambition. To let that way of life become your way of life. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. As we step into the dining room and examine what it is we really want, what are we really eager for? Jesus says, there's, a, Jesus says there's, a, there's another way. Which gets us to this third verse. I'm going to read this. Uh, this is uh, back to 1 John. Reading the whole thing. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Two weeks ago, we um, used this little diagram. As we're coming up in the end of our like, summary of the whole Bible. And what we said is, we now live in this difficult in-between time. We live in the age of catastrophe and sin, the, the age of the flesh and of the world. And Christ came to address it on the cross, inaugurating and starting a new kingdom. And eventually he's going to return, and that kingdom will be the only kingdom. Right now, we live in the messy middle. Right now, we live in this place where um, there's both the, the way of the flesh and the way of the Spirit. There's both the kingdom of catastrophe and the new kingdom. 
And what John says in that passage essentially is this. When when we find ourselves letting our ambitions and our dreams be dictated by the world, then we've chosen the side that's going to go away. We're pursuing a vision that we already know is going to come to an ultimate and complete end. He's like, I just want you to know, do not love the world. The resurrection of Christ has has already said that that world and all its corruption is going to go away. Why don't you pick up the values of the new kingdom, the new way of life, the way of the Spirit? What if we learned how to allow our hearts and mind and ambition to be constrained in that way? Here's the problem with that. I think for a lot of us, whenever we start talking about following the way of the Spirit and not the way of the world, we start imagining sort of this moment from Holy Grail. Do you know that movie, The Holy Grail? Monks are kind of walking and they're wearing their drab, you know, robes. They look very happy and about every 10 steps, they wha-bam, knock themselves in the head. Whenever we start imagining that God has called us to a life in the Spirit and not in the flesh, we sort of imagine we're going to have to get rid of of everything except for like the most ratty pair of jeans we have. We sort of imagine we're going to have to get rid of, of all the things that are like the pleasures of life so we can sort of just walk around and moping, waiting for the new kingdom. But the new kingdom is here. And the one that, do you guys remember the second fruit of the Spirit? It's joy. It's joy. What God wants you to have right now in the middle of learning His way is joy. Boundless joy. I watched two really good football games yesterday, and I'm sure the Lord was pleased. What ends up happening, however, is watching those games, when they somehow become like like an obsession, when they leave leisure and become a way of life, that's a problem. But God has given us this world, has given us our, our bodies that we might sort of know something of joy and pleasure and experience and adventure. That's all part of life in the Spirit. So the trick is, how do we allow ourselves and our conversation with the Lord as we speak to Him, how do we find ourselves being unworldly but not otherworldly? How do we find ourselves finding a way where where we recognize these things are good, but they don't have to define us. They don't have to drive us. We're not dictated or defined by them. Find a way where we can be in the spirit, not of the world. We'll find that we can way that we can sort of let Christ inhabit us more and more fully, not just live a life of the flesh. To be unworldly, but not to be so otherworldly that we're no use to anybody or ourselves or God Himself. Do you know what that is for you? 
want you, just, just for a minute here, before we come to this table, I want you to just take a personal survey. Too many ages and stages and experience and generational realities here for me to do this in some sort of a blanketed way. But just think about your own life. What do you dream about? What's your pursuit? What makes you complete? What can you let go of so that's less true tomorrow than it is today? What attitude, habit, or pattern do you just need to let go of so you can live a life of the Spirit? In part, this table tells a story of what God says and knows we actually need most. He sat with his disciples on that which he was betrayed, and, and he knew their heart. He knew what they wanted. He knew the kind of kingdom they were eager for. He knew what they thought they were going to receive. What he knew of his disciples way back then he knows of you. And he knows of me. We don't hide. We try. And what is it that Jesus gave them in the, of all of that seeking and ambition and yearning? He just gave them this simple meal. And he said, this meal, this represents all that you really need. At this church, one of the words we use for this table is the Lord's Supper, because he's our host, and he surveyed the human heart. He sits across the table between you, he sits across the table between me, he says, I know what you need, and this is a simple representation and promise that I want to give it to you. On the night which he was betrayed, he took this bread and sitting with disciples as his host and he broke it and he gave thanks for it. He said, this is my body which is given for you. This is what you really need. Take and eat it. Remember me. In the same way after the supper, he poured out the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Take Drink it. Slake your thirst. Remember me. The Apostle Paul reminds us that whenever it is we take this bread and we drink from this cup, we proclaim his saving death until he comes again to put it all to rights. Until then, it declares his willingness to see our hunger, our ambition, our need and his willingness to fill it with himself. Lord, thank you for these simple and elemental gifts. 
It's not complicated to come to your table. It's not hard. The invitation is clear and elegant. Come. Trust in the one who came for you. Lord, help us to discover how these simple things are a reminder and proclamation that you have come to meet our every deepest need, now and for all time. And all God's people said, Amen.